All right, so we're live. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me this morning. No problem. Thanks for having me. And welcome to the third episode of Doing My Best podcast with me, Nick and Sonny, and our guest, like I said, Jamie. You know, you were one of the first people I actually thought of when starting to think about this podcast and who I wanted to have on. You know, just love your energy and enthusiasm for learning and even enthusiasm for software development or product development that can be bleak sometimes, you know, and I really jumped on to your enthusiasm as well as just the posts all the time on LinkedIn of you trying helping others, you know, you're always helping others look, find new jobs or congratulating them on the things that they've done. So I just loved your energy. And, you know, that's why I wanted you on the uh, podcast. So why don't you give us a little bit of background, who you are, you know, what you do, that kind of thing. Sure. My name is Jamie Bernard. I'm a consultant. Like, you know, I, I tell people I do a lot of PowerPoint and talking for a living. But I, I largely spend time in the product management space, a lot in strategy. So really looking at our, how are we making investment decisions and, and that sort of thing. I, I've been in software development in some way, shape or form for multiple decades. So I, I don't know if I should quantify that, but I obviously started when I was like five. But I, I, at this point, you know, in, in my career, I am really finding a lot of joy in seeing others grow and seeing others succeed and you know if you've spent any time in software development you know it is not a one-person show it's you know just like a, a baseball game right you can have the best first baseman in the world but if the rest of the team isn't able to to level up and showcase their skill then you're not going to win the game and so you know to, to that end that that's kind of where my perspective is and where i've spent a lot of time in creating organizations helping redesign organizations and rethink as you know we are evolving. There are a lot of organizations that haven't. So I'm spending a lot of time nurturing people through implementation of product management, implementation of different org design and, and that sort of thing. So that's sort of me in a nutshell. As a, a non-professional, I'm a big time gamer. I absolutely love being on the PlayStation Network. I read all the time. So I, I spend time in the morning reading some type of nonfiction. And then I read absolute garbage in the afternoon or in the afternoon, in the evenings so that, you know, I can, I can un unplug my, my brain and just let it play. And, and I also enjoy doing logic puzzles and, and those at home escape rooms, stuff like that. So I'm a, oh, cool. a giant kid when I'm not locked in. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love the game as well. And so I always, I have to put that aside, you know, I have to set actual yes. time for me to game so that I can focus on the rest of my stuff. Yeah, you said PlayStation. So is that, are you, do you do PC gaming and Xbox and all that as well, or just PlayStation? I used to, but I have these little hands and yeah. in a fantastic study of usability, Sony seems to have created the, the controller that's easier for my hands to use. Yeah, yeah. And so I spend a lot of time on that. I do have a switch. So when I travel, I'll take that yeah. with me but the context switching between the different controls is always a joy. But, but yeah, I, I don't do any PC. I can't because mentally I equate my PlayStation, or excuse me, my PC is for work, work. Yep. and my console is, is not. So for me that having that division is, is very important. So yeah, but I vast amount of my majority of my gaming time is on the PlayStation network. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that. So that's awesome. Yeah. I'm a, big PC gamer got into it in the pandemic and, you know, built my own computer and things. And so oh, nice. something I've never done before, but getting back to the podcast, you know, <laughs> I, you, you talked about helping organizations change and 
change for the better. And I think that really starts with the paradigm shift, right? This mindset that you've come to and, and that I learned from Nexian, and that's where both we both met each other, was that uh, the previous company, Nexian, now launched at Entity Data. And they had me read the fixed mindset to growth mindset book before joining. And it was never really, I was never really introduced to that idea of this fixed mindset and growth mindset and what that is. Um, and I learned a ton about it. And I just, I love that philosophy. Do you want to give a little definition of what each are and how you utilize that to help organizations change for the better? So it's pretty straightforward. Fixed mindset basically means I have all of the skill and capability that I'm going to have. And this is who I am and how I navigate the world, how I navigate my job. And I'm not going to learn anything more, right? It's just, this is, this is where, where I'm at. Whereas a growth mindset is exactly what it sounds like. I can learn, I can evolve, I can change my skill set. I can learn a new skill set. I can consume different ways of thinking or different ways of working. And I can learn a different mindset and maybe apply my current skills in a different way. And so the, the two, it's really important, especially when hiring and when trying to do any kind of transformation to suss out who you're working with, yeah. because that the fixed mindset is really, really difficult. You can have the most brilliant person in the world, but if they don't see that change, not only is inevitable, but there's value in improving and changing the, with the world you can really cause a lot of harm to an organization. And so making sure that you're working with individuals and companies on really identifying where they are and whether you can kind of unstick someone or an organization is critical first step before you make any kind of moves like that or any kind of recommendations. So really it's just the, can I improve and can I grow or can, or am I stuck? And this is just where, where I'm at. That's, yeah, and how I, mean, I use those. <laughs> yeah, and I I've been watching a lot of Big Bang Theory recently, and actually just came just came to mind that Sheldon is kind of in the fixed mindset in the first few seasons. Although he's a genius, he doesn't think there's anything else out there for him that he he thinks is necessary necessary to learn. And as the seasons go on, you know, he gets into relationships that, that are outside of education, outside of of physics, and he's then able to absorb the second half of himself, be a genius, as well as be a sociable, you know, helpful person in society. You know, I, yeah. I think I fall into that sometimes too, with sticking in the fixed mindset. Have you ever, you know, how do you get out of it when you find yourself falling into the fixed mindset and get yourself back into the growth mindset? I think people need permission to feel their feelings. And I, and I wish more people would give themselves permission to kind of feel the feelings. And, and what I mean by that is, in my experience, anytime somebody is sort of stuck in that fixed mindset, there is always an underlying reason. I, I have yet to really come across somebody who is just so staunchly, nope, I'm not going to change. We're not going to do this. This is ridiculous. I, I haven't run across anyone who can't be moved, so to say. But understanding what is the cause of that is, is really important. And I will tell you that this, even in my own case, the cause is always fear. It's always the unknown, right? Humans don't like to not know things, even though, spoiler alert, we don't know things. Yeah. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. And so the predictability of the day-to-day -day is comforting. 
to us, right? Mm-hmm. In when something comes along like a merger and acquisition or you know a, a disruptor in the organization or in the marketplace comes along, there's always that first jolt of fear where your day-to-day got a whole lot less predictable and your future that got a whole lot less predictable. And that's very scary. And I think some people will choose to dig in their heels as a little bit of denial, like, you know, oh, it'll pass. It's a fad or, or whatever, or, oh, this new person is here. They're going to do a regime change. This always happens. It never changes anything, whatever. Right. So you get that cynicism that comes in always fear underlying. And even for myself, like there's always this existential crisis moment of, and are my skills still relevant? You know, what can I learn? Especially with AI on the horizon, there's a ton of fear around, oh, my job's going to become obsolete because a computer's going to be able to do it, right? So I always give myself permission to kind of feel those feelings and just process through them and really try to poke at what am I really, what's really going on here? Why am I having this kind of reaction? And then after I, you know, I just kind of let that fill out for a little bit, right? Because not everything can stay dialed to 11 forever. And so as that temperature starts to to decrease, I try to think about, okay, what about that was so scary to me? Mm-hmm. And if I think about AI, um, the scary part is, oh my gosh, am I even going to be useful now, right? In, in right. coming and helping companies strategize. And the reality is after I think about that for a second, you know, go use ChatGPT for an hour yeah, exactly. and you will see really quickly. <laughs> That it's not going to replace you, but it can be a wonderful tool to really give you a starting point or it can augment things. It can add, you know, to, to what you're building out. So right. to the answer to, to the question is really get to the heart of, of why I'm feeling that way. Nine times out of 10, it's, it's some level of fear. Really poke at what about it is scary and then go demystify it. Sometimes it retains the the scariness and you have to take a little more drastic action because defanging it isn't always going to be the the answer. But if it is more drastic action, really objectively accepting that and finding out what of this can I control and what can I not control is is really an important next step for me. Because, you know, if I can't control it, I don't spend a ton of time in it. I accept it for what it is. And what are the actions I can take to navigate through? Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm, permission to feel, right? Give yourself permission to actually assess the feelings that you're having. And most of the time, like you said, it, it is fear. And that's the same thing I've been dealing with kind of with this podcast. It's all brand new. I don't know how to edit. I didn't have all of the technology. And so I've had to learn everything on the fly because I know my end goal is valuable and I'm passionate about the the topic. So if I take the time to learn all these things, you know, and that, gets rid of the fear. And then you said, go demystify it. And I think that's the part that's kind of the most challenging sometimes is if it is so scary, sometimes you just have to jump, jump right into the deep end, right? You you can't wait for it. Like you said, for it to figure itself out. Sometimes you just got to jump into the deep end. Exactly. And, And it's okay to ask for help. And that, you know, that's the other piece of it is, you know, sometimes from a consulting standpoint, that's what I'm there to do is yep. to help demystify it and to help you know people find their place in the new ways of working or in a new organization or opportunity inside you know the the new thing maybe that skill is obsolete but the 17 other things you're really really good at those can be put to use yeah 
and so perfect segue into the next topic that I'd like to talk about, which is like building a team and or support group. Like you just said, sometimes it's good to ask for help building that team around you both professionally and personally to be successful. How do you build that team around you and build that team growth mindset together so that you can constantly fail fast and then get back to what's working well and, and tackle, you know, and provide value quickly. Some of the best advice I was given early on in my career was never assume you're the smartest person in the room. And that was, I, I think about it all the time, anytime I'm in a conversation, because the reality is, is the, I'm rarely the smartest person in the room. And so to, to that end, you know, there are things that I am good at and there are things that I am not good at. And being able to build a good team requires, in my opinion, two key things. Number one, you know, self-awareness. What are you good at? What are your superpowers? What are you not good at? And number two, what is the situation need? Is it like from a consulting standpoint, I won't always go directly after the people who are just really good at creating backlogs or, or something like that, right? If I'm building a product management organization, there's some set of table stakes that yes, these, these boxes just have to be checked by everyone, but it's up to me to assess, okay, what is our value, value proposition? What are we bringing to the marketplace and promising our customers? Yeah. And what am I good at here? And what am I not good at? And what should a team like this be good at? And so what I like to do is make sure that I, I have as clear of an understanding as I can have on what I believe those answers are. Plunking myself where I belong and where I can thrive and then finding the people who are really good at the things that I'm not so that I can learn from them and then making sure that they have ownership, accountability and direction based on the strategy so that they can execute with me out of their way. I tell people, you point me like a cannon, like, you know, point and fire at roadblocks so that they can do the things that they need to do. So when I'm building a team, I try to make sure that it's fit for purpose, that their skills are complementary to mine, but I also want it to be a Venn diagram. I want to make sure that it's not just that they're good at what I'm, I'm bad at and, you know, not great at what I'm good at. I still want us to have a solid thread of this is the core set of skills that we all can go and just execute. And then that way we've created some differences to where people can shine in the areas that they really like to shine in. They learn to lead without having to be, you know, here's, here's the stuff that you have to do and making sure that there's a clear strategy with outcomes so that as they're starting to formulate the way that they want to navigate the team, we connect on that so that we're moving together as a unit that is fit for purpose for our value proposition in the marketplace. But it's not, I don't have to stand in front with the microphone and the spotlight all of the time. There's enough sunshine for everyone, but making sure that that outcome and that strategy, that's my, that's incumbent upon me as a leader in course correcting whenever any of us get it wrong is also important. When I get it wrong, it's important for me to own that take accountability and say, okay, folks, let's regroup around this. This is what we've learned. This was a fail. Let's mark that down and learn from it and move forward. And then, you know, do the same for those in, in my charge. If, you know, if they screw up, let's talk about it. Let's figure out what, what, you know, the learning was and what the impact was, and then we'll deal with it and move forward. 
I don't have very much patience for a punitive environment. I, I have no patience for it, actually. I think it's BS. <laughs> and somehow, you... I mean, unless you're like, you know, breaking the law. <laughs> yeah, yes. And I haven't seen that type of environment prior to Nexient. And coming into Nexient, it was so refreshing. And it, it felt that you were given the freedom to be creative in your own way, to be successful in the way that you felt you were going to be successful. And how do you get comfortable with that? If you're a leader who is kind of micromanaging or is always on top of your team and having, you know, not letting them kind of figure out what their strengths are. And how do you get a leader to move from, you know, that mindset of I need to be in charge of everything and be the head of everything to letting people do their own work and be creative in the way that they're completing their tasks and, you know, giving them the freedom to accomplish the goals. Everyone. I, I mean, I will say everyone, because I'm just assuming everyone struggles yeah. with this. Whenever you are climbing the ladder, there are two key moments of change from individual contributor into management and from management slash middle management into executive. Those two transitions are really hard because when you become a manager, it becomes less about what you do well, even though you're responsible for usually still getting the things done, you have to make sure that your team executes because that's your job. Yep. And people who are new to that are used to being the good job doer, not the good job inspirer. And so part of what I really focus on when I'm working with people in that manager space is let's look at the tactics as A, like this is where we're starting from. B is where we want to get to. Within the appropriate time frame and with appropriate checkpoints, give people the ability to do B and shut up. <laughs> and if if you have to connect once a week on like where, you know, where are you, that's fine, but make it agendaed, very specific, and stay out of the way. Because the truth of the matter is, is that you cannot be a good manager if you're trying to do everyone's job. The people who who you're managing need to be given the space and safety to do the work. And so that's really what I'll focus on with managers is while yes, there is some doing that you're accountable for, you it's up to you to make sure that they are successful. And if they're not successful, you're not successful. So I find it really important to, to help teach that idea. Also, whenever I'm building a, a role like that, like we are all driven by what are we getting paid? What are the things that I have to do to be successful? And so part of those objectives that I'll create for somebody in those positions is your team has to achieve these things. And some of those successes are individual. And not for the manager, like your person needs to be, be capable of giving an executive presentation because what this does is it incentivizes the manager to get out of the way and make sure that that person does a good job and is good at what they're doing so that they can, you know, they can be seen as kind of a leader builder, right? And that's ultimately where I'll spend time. And then also I'll leverage that to say, now you cannot move up until these people are capable of doing not only the job that you're managing, your job as well. And so we try, I try to uh, really illustrate 
that thread and and how we work together up and down the the high, you know hierarchical stack of whatever organization you're in. But yeah. if you want to move up, you have to have somebody to to fill your spot, whether it's you're hiring from the outside, whether you know it's you're promoting from within. And so by making that person accountable for creating people who can replace them, you sort of detach from the possession of, oh my gosh, I have to have all the control to do well. When in reality, I, I can't control you as another human being. I can only enable you in order to hit my goals. And so you sort of, you try to work on breaking that control connection mm-hmm. and, and re-solder that onto an outcome connection. And whether I go zigzag to get from A to B or curly Q to get from A to B or straight line, the outcome is the most important. The yeah. coaching is around maybe a curly Q might work better next time. Let's examine that. And so I encourage those people who get really mired down in the how to when the outcome has been achieved or as you're doing touch points. You can coach on the how to say it has worked for me in the past doing A, B, and C, but don't hold those people responsible for working like you. We just need the outcome, right? And something similar happens when you go, you know, from the tactics into the strategic, whether it's that's into a director level, into a VP level, you have a similar thing because you have to get really comfortable with ambiguity because it's your, you're the alchemist at that point. What is the strategy? What? How do I actually turn that into tangible action that people can do? And what are the things that I need to move out of the way? Who do I need to go work with? Who do I need to become friends with? And, and that sort of thing. So I take a similar approach whenever I'm coaching an executive on that to, to, base, to kind of let go, but it can be hard. And so a lot of what I'll do is make sure that they're incented based on whether it's a bonus that they're looking to to you know check the boxes to to get whether it's a promotion whether it's just some type of personal growth goal whatever that is if you incentivize people to work together and to grow others they'll do it yeah and i was just i was going to ask that question too what other incentives do you use and the thing that also came to mind was maybe the leader might not be confident that they have the right answer to coach them, mm-hmm. coach their team members, their employees on the how, if it's different from mm-hmm. what they do, right? So they, yeah. you know, if somebody turns left to get to the Starbucks and I turn right to get there, I might not know the path turning left. How do you coach somebody if you're not sure of the path to get there? or how they've done it, but they've been successful. How do you still coach somebody, even though you may not understand their process or their how? That then becomes uh, a search. So I don't, I'm very sensitive to the Dunning-Kruger graph, meaning I'm, I don't like to pretend that I'm an expert when I'm not. And so what I like to do is find the person who, who knows. So if it's somebody in the organization, I will make an introduction. If it is a YouTube channel, like I can't tell you how many times I have learned something new from YouTube because I was curious about how to to present something financial to a CFO, for example. I it's not a strong suit of mine, and so I dug in and, and leaned in and found a, a resource to find that out. Maybe it's something as mundane as that. It might be a book, right? It it's 
that's where it takes some level of curiosity to really get to the heart of, okay, if you're doing it a different way, show me, let's see where you're having an issue. And then let me flex in the organization, in my network, online, and see where we can find a resource for you if I'm not the right resource. I think a lot of people assume that I have to know everything about your job if I can effectively lead you. And that's not the case. That's a manager. If, you know, if I'm going to manage somebody's tasks, okay, then yeah, I probably have to know all those things if I'm going to get down into the details and, and double check it. But yeah. if you're doing that, stop it <laughs> because it's not helping you or anyone else. But if I'm a leader, then it's the outcome that I worry about. And if I don't know how the detail, if I don't know how to do it at the detail level, and somebody has come to me and asking for help, or we know that there's there's smoke, but we don't know where the fire is, then as a leader, I should have this the you know be secure enough to say, you know what, I don't know how to do that. I can put you in contact with somebody who does, and they're really really good at it. And that's usually how I'll navigate around that because not everything is mine to solve, but it is some dots are mine to connect. And as a leader, making sure that those connections happen is really important. I love that. And in sales, I feel like that's kind of my role as well as connecting the dots for people is bringing in the right resources, the right people who have the right answers, you know, and then being able to ask the right questions on the other side to the client to have that information to then bring back to, to our experts. But I love that answer. I think that's a great way to do it. And it shows again, your enthusiasm for learning, your your, that how much you care about helping other people. I mean, it, it, because that does take time out of your day, then to go look, you know, read that book that's about a new process or find a YouTube channel to be able to help somebody else. So it, it definitely takes a level of care and support from your end as well that I wanted to commend or, or give thanks to or appreciate because that, that is challenging. Not everybody can, can spend that extra time. No, and, and that's okay. And it's okay if you, if, if not, right. Every, there are different leadership styles and, and, and that's okay. But for me, I have found that, that that works and then I'm just naturally curious. So poking yeah. around it like that is fun. So it scratches an itch, Yeah, <laughs> and, cool. you know, I find, find things that I don't know and, and now I know them. So then we're talking about leadership and we've built this team now and something that I find challenging in my life is in my personal life kind of because in sales I'm kind of a one man show but in my personal life when I build this great team around me and then I get caught up in maybe addressing their needs before my needs or you know how do you balance that the needs of your team versus you know your own professional and personal goals that is a fantastic question because I I can tell you, I have made this mistake where you over-index on, you know, being for the people, right? You know, they, they're, there's there's that that part of it and you sort of lose sight of the bigger picture and full disclosure, I still struggle with this. And so, so what I have found is being very intentional with my time around, you know, I, I sit down on Sunday evening, every every Sunday evening. Part of my for the week routine is what are my goals for the week and what like just three. I, I don't focus on on more than that because chances are Tuesday, something's going to trump one or two of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 
I, I try, I do, I stack rank. What are the three main things that if I were to finish the week and feel successful that I were to accomplish? And so as I start to unpack that, you know, this is maybe a 30 minute exercise, by the way, like I don't over overthink this. I try to think about if I were to say 10% of my time, 20% of my time, like what, what amount of time do I think I need to dedicate to this, to get where I want to be? And I will go into my calendar and I'm ruthless about it. I will block out time. I'll either mark myself out of office. I will put myself on do not disturb. I will do what I need to do to block that time because I'm not a physician and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not doing things that are saving lives at this point. And so to that end, I have a really tangible amount of control over my time management. I will block off the time and use it for what I need to use it for. I'm also hyper aware of the fact that things take the time that we give it. I forget what law that is, but you know, I, I try to, to make sure that I allow myself enough time, but not too much to get to where I need to be. And so that, that is what I have started to do, I would say, over the past three or four years, where on Sunday evenings, just kind of taking that, that moment to frame my week and say, okay, this is what I want to get done, has really helped me make sure that I'm not spending so much time on the day-to-day -day with folks that I lose sight of the things that I'm accountable for, because ultimately that it's going to have a negative uh, impact on the organization. It's going to have a negative impact on my team because I'll be chasing my tail. And so, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that it's a balance and there is no set formula. Some weeks it's four hours and I, you know, I'm good to go because in this industry, as you know, it ebbs and flows in software development, it ebbs and flows. You have times where you're like, I am so like not busy this week. And then the following week you could easily work 60, 70 hours, right? It's yeah. just the nature of the beast. And so it's up to us to make sure that we really identify what is important to us. We are going to get it wrong at times and that's okay. But when that happens, okay, pivot and go. And then, you know, during some of that time on Sundays, if I, you know, depending on whether it was a rough week the week before, or I'm anticipating a rough week, I might reflect on what is actually important here. What is driving, you know, what's driving things just depending on what's going on. So that, that's how I navigate through that. I know it's a big challenge for, for leaders, especially people who lead with empathy, because you tend to way over rotate on the people side and not so much on the objectives. What are we actually getting done? Let's get down to brass tacks and you know maybe depersonalize it a little bit and figure yeah. out, are we doing the things we need to do to be a successful organization and team? Yeah, yeah, that's, you're right. I, that's, you said it, and I didn't know how to put it into words, but you know, I lead with empathy and sometimes I get carried away with that or, or I'm not able to separate that. And you talk about goal setting, you know, even in the new year this year, my wife and I, we you know, made all these new goals and, and we really took a look at the goals we made last year and the goals we made this year and tried to make them achievable. So I think that's important when goal setting is to actually get to achieve them so that you want to make goals again and continue to go back. Can you talk about maybe how you create goals that are achievable for you and how others can utilize that same philosophy to maybe take uh, create goals for themselves? So some of my goals are achievable. Some of them might not be because I, I do feel like we need to kind of shoot for the moon in certain instances. 
I have landed flat on my face. So like there's risk there, but I'm very risk tolerant. That that's one of the things that as I have had failures over the years, yeah, it hurt in the moment, but you know what? It didn't like I survived. I'm okay. I, you know, my career survived, right? Again, we're not talking about egregious, illegal, like super irresponsible things, but trying things and and failing while scary, it's not as painful as you might think. It is momentarily. It's like when you fall down or if you twist your ankle and you're like, oh my God, I'm never going to walk again. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, you're like, okay, I can walk. This sucks, but I can do it. And then in a couple of days, you're fine. You're back to playing whatever sport or, you know, just walking you if you're me. Yeah. And you forget the pain, right? But but yeah. you you just kind of learn learn that, okay, the next time it happens, okay, I, I'll be fine in a little bit. Let me just breathe through this, right? And then slowly but surely, you, just, you, you become much more capable of navigating it because it doesn't hurt as bad as you feared it would. And so to, to that end, like... I do want to set a big goal. Like I, you know, there are things that I want to do that may not be achievable and I try to chunk it up as best I can. So this is where product management comes into play, comes handy because I try to decompose it down into what are the things that I could potentially do to control this. Now, I also am very open to the fact that you can do everything right and still lose and that's okay. Like there, you can't control everything and that that's okay. And I think in this employment climate, that it's important for people to realize that like, it's, it's okay if you did all of the right things and you didn't win. It just is, it just is how, how things that's life, but learn what you can and move on to the next. And so when I set achievable goals, those are the short term. That's where like, I'll, I'll take something super easy, like a financial goal. I'll look at my, the state of the union, let's say my husband and I want to go on a vacation or whatever. What do we need to to save up? What are we wanting to do? And we will take those, you know, pay period by pay period and pull it out and put it in whatever, you know, given the time frame, we'll pull out whatever we need to, and then we'll book it and do our thing. Right. So whether it's a certification, whether it is getting something done so that another team can move on or or whatever that might be. Try to make sure that the the goals are really sliced up to where we've got some short term. Number one, I have ADHD and I need the dopamine. So I need to make sure that I've sliced it up to where I can be like, yes, I can check the box. Um, So that's how I approach it. And I always approach it to where it's not this nebulous thing. I want to be successful, right? Because that gives me permission to lower the bar. I, it's, you know, I want to make sure that by, you know, the end of the year, I have met with these individual people and asked and gotten feedback on specific things I need to work on. And whatever those things are, I will set an action plan for, you know, one or two of those to get better. Right. So for example, I don't know a ton about AI and I, you know, I've talked to some folks and gotten some feedback out, you know, in my external network. And they're like, you really should probably lean into that. It's something that, especially as product people, we need to learn. And so I've been taking some classes on, you know, just intro stuff, right? Just because it's it's a goal that I have to be able to speak coherently uh, inside any organization about how we might leverage artificial intelligence as intelligence as a product organization. So that's like a small goal. 
a big goal is I might want to be a vice president. And if that's the case, what are the skill gaps that I have and how might the things that I'm working on in the short term serve that long-term goal? So I try to make sure I can decompose that big goal down into the things that I'm doing now. So I'm not just getting the short-term fix. It is in service of a bigger picture. And that's how I decompose an epic. I love that's that. how I you... decompose an initiative. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I loved about Agile and learning about all of that. It applied so much to my personal life. And I, I really mm -hmm. felt like I was growing professionally, but I, at the same time, I was taking leaps and bounds personally on how I address problems, on how I think about solving challenges and things of that nature, providing value quickly. You know, how can I get to the shortest, you know, quickest route to value? I think was something that I really learned that I tried to, I tried to enact on this podcast, right? Limit the amount of obstacles that it's going to take me to get a podcast out because that's the value that's where people are gaining value and then i can start to grow on it from there learn from my mistakes but i first need to get something of value out as fast as possible right um yep and just a quick question do you start at the big goal like say your year goal or do you start at the short-term goals and the, or like you start the big and work back or do you start the short and move up I started the big and worked back. So I believe that I, I Stephen Covey, Franklin Covey, which yeah, was yeah, the yeah. begin with the end in mind. Yes, that is the, for me, that that's how it works. Because when I inevitably hit something I don't understand, or I, it starts to get hard, like we can do hard things, right? Having that end goal, it makes it worth the pain and makes it, you know, I, I absolutely just despise geometry and like when I was in undergrad right like I had to get through it because I had to get my degree and so keeping my eye on that prize is what helped me get through the six eight weeks that it took to you know whatever how much ever that time took to get through that part, portion of the class and I sought help when I needed it and you know I I took the test and took my licks when it, you know and, and I made it through just fine but it was painful. And without having that goal, it makes you ask the question, why am I doing this to myself? Well, I'm doing it to myself because it's making me better at what I'm hoping to do in the future. And it's going to get me to that point. If I don't put myself through this, then I'm not going to be able to do the things that I'm setting out to do. And so beginning with the end in mind is really one of the things that that's important to me. It also helps me prioritize because you know, yes, the AI stuff is really interesting, but I'm easily distracted. And so, you know, I might rabbit hole down into something completely irrelevant, right? And so it helps me kind of bring, bring myself back into focus and say, okay, well, yes, that might've been interesting. Is that in service of the overarching goal? If not, like maybe shelve it and come back to it as a lower priority. So I feel like having the bigger goal helps you prioritize and, and you should prioritize again, ruthlessly with how you're spending your time, how you're spending your energy and what you're learning and what you're not learning. Cause there's an opportunity cost to all of it. If I'm learning one thing, there's something else I could have been learning that I chose not to. And so I should make that choice based on a, you know, some level of prioritization. And to me, it's the, it's the longer term goal. I theme out my year. And so like, I kind of, I'm one of those word of the year people. And so my word this year is bold. And so, nice. you know, bold risks take, you know, make bold choices and, you know, 
be be bold about self advocacy, be bold about advocating for my team, and and that sort of thing, right? And so I try to theme that through in the smaller things that I'm doing, and then I'll ask myself, like, are you being are you being a little cowardly here, Jamie? You're taking the easy way, mm-hmm. or are you trying something interesting and different? And it's okay if it's easy sometimes. That's okay. You got got to be easy sometimes, but not every time. Yeah, and my I this first this is the first year I've kind of gone in with a theme, and mine is the it's okay it's okay to fail but it's not okay to not try and that's kind of i'm taking everything i can just all new stuff anything i need to to be successful just turned 30 this past year and i felt like i was kind of hitting a a plateau you know okay i'm comfortable with where i am i'm confident in the things i'm doing but i didn't feel like i had a next step okay what's this next big thing when i'm 40 you know what am i going to be able to say that i achieved over these 10 years because in the in your 20s you're still growing you're graduating from college you're getting your first job it was easy to hit those milestones and now it's kind of like okay what's my next big milestone and so my answer was i don't know and so i need to try Mm -hmm. a thousand things to figure out what's my next big thing you know i and so that's kind of how i got into this year but i wanted to go back real quick you spoke about risk tolerance and I think that's something that I struggle with. What is risk tolerance? It is being comfort being comfortable. Yeah, it, it, it's it's being comfortable, not knowing the outcome. You know, I I'm okay jumping off a cliff if it's a ten foot drop or if it's a fifty foot drop. I'm really hoping it's not a hundred foot drop. Yeah, <laughs> if it is, then you know I try to make sure that I'm appropriately equipped to land safely, but if it's not, and it, you know, it turns out to be a, a, a bigger risk, then the reward tends to be pretty good. When I fail, it doesn't hurt my ego like it used to. I, you know, this is the beautiful part of being in your mid forties is you have failed enough by then, or hopefully you have failed enough by, by now to where you are pretty confident that you don't know it all. And there's something really liberating with that because that is when the trying the new things for me became a lot easier and a lot more palatable if it turned out that I wasn't good at it. And so, excuse me. And so, you know, that, that level of risk tolerance, I think is what I'll bring to a conversation sometimes when it comes to working with a client, you know, like, and this is when I really want focus on the prioritization aspect because what you risk and how big you risk should be balanced with what it your what level of stability you have right like i wouldn't make a a big bold bet that would if if it failed if the consequence was we lost our house or i lost a medical license or something like that like i probably wouldn't go that far and so when I am trying something new or when I am challenging to, to really experiment and, and see if something might or might not work, part of what I want to ask myself and clients and other people is what happens if it falls flat on its face. It might mean for a client, we wasted $100,000. Somebody might tell you that, right? When in reality, you didn't waste it, you learned it, right? You've spent $100,000 to learn that had you invested a million dollars, it would have been a big fat waste of money, right? Yeah. So, right? So, I mean, it's it's better to, to lose a little fast than lose a lot slowly. And then 
you know, making sure that I've got my house clean in order to be able to take that risk. So, you know, I have, I'm very risk tolerant, like with my career, for example, I, I will push back, I'll try different things. And that's largely because, you know, there are some things in it that I've been able to do in my personal life to where if the most dramatic thing were to happen, I have planned for that. And so, you know, there's some, there's security in that. And so for me to build up that risk tolerance, it wasn't just like, yes, okay, I got good at facing the pain because I, you know, I failed enough. I'm not like a big, that complete failure, but like I, I've made enough mistakes to know that, that yes, it's hard and we can do hard things, but I've also created enough stability, both personally and professionally to be able to leverage some of that credibility and stability to take the risks to where if I lose it, it doesn't completely ruin everything. And so it's important to, when you look at the, the risk that you're taking, to I give the consequences intended, unintended, what happens if it really, really fails, what happens if it really, really succeeds, and just kind of try to game that out as best you can, even though at the end of the day, you're trying, you're looking at a crystal ball, you're, you're trying to predict the yeah. future and you can't do that. But what you can do is calculate as best you can so that you soften the blow of any failure. And then you also, you know, keep in mind the engine that you've already got running. Just keep keep that healthy as well. So that's how I created my risk tolerance. Not everybody is okay with, with that sort of thing because you have some folks who they might be very early in their career and they're like, listen, if I fail, I could get fired and it would be really difficult to get another job. And I've got, you know, X, Y, Z going on there. I might be nearing retirement age. I, my, I do not want to take a big risk right now. I will help you take a risk, but for me, it just doesn't fit with my life plan and my, and my goals. So like it's part of it is where you are in your career also, and can your career handle you taking a, a big risk. So Long answer to a short question, but I, I wish more people would take more risks, but you know, again, you're, you're, you're reading my mind. So <laughs> you're, I think more people don't take that risk because again, back to the fear and stress that is put on us. Right. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes you think you're taking a, a good risk that even if it fails, it's still, you know, you're learning. And it doesn't turn out the way you want, and you have all this pressure and stress put on you. And I'm sure you know. It sounds like you you've also found a way to deal with stress and pressure and that kind of thing, because that kind of comes along with with trying new things and being risk tolerant. But how would you give advice to somebody who you know is afraid of that pressure and stress that comes with taking risks? How so? My leader, I have been really, really, really fortunate. In my career, I have had some leaders who created the space for me to be able to do that. And so I really put a lot of pressure on senior leaders to create the air cover so that risks can be taken. And so to, to that end, if you are a senior leader and you're wanting to take a risk, you should be bold enough to have a conversation with your leader, or you know, if you're seeking funding for something, you should be able to have the information and detail that you need to make a coherent argument for funding of, of you know an experiment. Or if you have your own PNL, you should have a very logical case for why you made a decision that you made. 
and everybody is accountable to someone. And I, I don't necessarily think there's a ton of value in doing stuff in secret or in a vacuum, unless you're start up and you're in stealth mode, right? That, that notwithstanding, I'm just talking about like normal day-to-day stuff. I think that it's incumbent upon your leader to create the space for that type of thing. I, one of my very first bosses, Mike, he, I, listen, no offense to like my current employer, but if he called me today and said he had a job, I'd leave like that because I, you know, I learned in my early twenties, he was a visionary, still is. He created air cover for his organization to know exactly what, what was needed to be successful. And then here's the space for risk and here's the space for experimentation. Who's in. And so it was an open invitation. It wasn't necessarily requiring me to push and push, right? Because not everybody's an extrovert. Not everybody is was raised in a way where they felt free to be able to do that, right? So there's privilege that comes with, with that kind of, of approach. And so what I always admired about what he did was he created space for um, people to do these things quietly or for people to do things where, you know, it wasn't in front of God and country, but it was still a, a risk for them. And so I put a lot of pressure on leaders to do that, to where, you know, if, if there is a risk in your organization, you don't always have to be the superhero. It's perfectly fine for your direct reports to be super successful. And your joy should come from going, ta-da, look at this amazing person on my team. And then that person put them in the spotlight because that does not take away from you as a leader. If nothing else, it shows that you are really freaking good at it and you have created depth in your organization and credibility to know that it's not just they're hiring you to work. They're hiring this culture and this this group of experts to, to work, right? And so I go, it all goes for me, it all goes back to to leaders because you know, when when Mike left, I was heartbroken. But I got so lucky where, you know, the person who followed him was fantastic. Now I've had some crap leaders too. So I I it wasn't all sunshine and daisies. <laughs> yeah. But but I did get really lucky with being having that modeled for me where, you know. You've got the very clear next steps. And for people who are interested in taking risks and trying new things, there was safety in that. But there was also discomfort because if you screwed up or if you needed to be course corrected, it wasn't always, oh, good job. Here's a grade A sticker, right? It was, you had to hear some hard things, but yeah, you do recognize. Yeah. And I think feedback, good and bad feedback from leadership and what you're saying is extremely important. I found that at, at Nexient that was the kind of the first time I was able to have real conversations with leadership about, Hey, these are the things I'm seeing. These are the challenges I'm having and get honest and positive feedback. And sometimes it wasn't all positive, but put me in the positive direction, right? There, it wasn't, you know, and so I think feedback is really important to as a leader. And so how do you manage giving good and bad feedback and, kind of going back to the empathy thing, you know, how, if you need to tell somebody something difficult, how do you handle that as a leader? So I am a very direct person and that is not for everyone. It, and not everybody will be direct with me, unfortunately. So I try to, when I'm talking to a leader and I'm asking for feedback, I give overt permission, like, listen, I, I want to know I'm comfortable with what I'm good at. What I need to understand is what I'm bad at. Where am I missing things? Like, what do I need to work on to close, to close certain gaps? 
And so I don't like to spend a lot of time when I'm receiving feedback, knowing what I did well, other than, yes, that was great. Okay, cool. Let's move on to the thing that I messed up because that's where I really want to spend my energy. Right. When giving feedback, I try to make sure that I have gotten to know the person well enough to understand how they want to be treated. And I typically just ask, how do you want to receive feedback? Do you want me to be direct? Do you want me to, you know, like the proverbial crap sandwich, right? Like, you know, I, I ask them how they want to be treated. And I have found that that conversation has allowed me to construct the feedback in a way that's meaningful for them to receive. So, you know, for somebody who who wants things to be a little bit more soft, a lot of times what I'll do is, well, regardless of the way I'm delivering it, is let's look at the situation. Because I, unless you have just been a, a brilliant jerk, you know, which we'll have that conversation too if we need to, most people, their intent is to do a good job. I have never met an employee who was like, you know what I'm here to do? I'm here to screw everything up. I've ne- like nobody is actually trying to do that, right? And so intent really matters. And so what I try to do is really get to the heart of, okay, here's the situation and here's the outcome that that we had. One of the things we need to talk about is here, you know, in in this specific space, this was the the choice that was made. Walk me through the thought process because I try to understand what was chosen and when and why, and then we'll course correct. And I'll let them know, you know, here's the the mistake as I see it. And here's what I've heard from, from other people. So here's kind of, you know, in, in the, in the future, these are the things that, that we need to work on. And that way I'm not just saying you screwed up and don't ever do it again. Right. Cause that does, they know every, we all know when we screw up, it feels like great. Yeah. And so like, you know, and, and if I'm mad about it, which I have been before, I will not talk about it. We will. I'll be like, listen, we're, I'm going to schedule some time for next week. Let's just kind of, you know, you're not going to get fired. I will outright say that, like, if they're, if I'm not going to fire somebody, I will tell that I don't want somebody fearing all weekend or stewing all weekend or whatever. Like, I don't want it to go that long. If emotions are really high, we will put it on the shelf for a couple of days so that we can have as objective a conversation as possible. Because the goal is to understand what's the behavior, what was the, Problem, cause, solution. What was the issue? What was the mistake that 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 caused it? What's the the course correction? And that's just how I've tended to approach those things. And when you're talking about the situation, it makes it a lot easier to to speak with the person and to hear it whenever you're not being attacked as a human being. It's this is the situation, and you you should have handled it differently. And here's why. So, you know, not everybody, not everybody's brain is the, is the same, right? And some people don't understand why certain behaviors are not okay. And so it's also because you're going to have neurodivergent people, you're going to have people of all different ages. It's also important to make sure that the why is, is understood clearly, even if it's just the facts, that way that person, you know, can learn and hopefully not make the same mistake again. And you brought up another Franklin Covey saying, which is seek to understand before being understood. And you've actually mentioned that a few times, I think, that during this podcast of just that philosophy, right, is, is and I try to enact that in my relationships and my personal life, too. You know, it, even in this, in the podcast, you know, asking good questions, you know, really being curious, like you said, having that curious mind. I think that, that 
has done so much for me in the short time since you know I started at NTT in, in June in this program and have been learning just more and more about how to communicate with people, how to ask good questions, how you know, your intent is so important and somebody else might have a different perception of your intent. So you, you have to think about both, you know, how you're coming across and how people are receiving it. I think that's, that's, I love that. And you know, I noticed that of you at Nexian and your leadership style. And that's, you know, again, why it was so great to be able to have you on the podcast. And Jamie, this has been a fantastic conversation. I wanted to close out with just, do you have a good quote or saying that you, you go by or you think about when thinking about staying positive or you know, having positive momentum? I, I said it earlier and I didn't mean to because I was totally going to save it for that question, but it just came out. It's that there is enough sunshine for everyone. And, you know, there's another one that I don't even know if it's a quote more than it is a philosophy. And it just keeps me humble. And that's mm-hmm. that the walls of the company will not crumble if I am not under its roof. Yeah. Because, and it and it's, sounds a little cynical, but it helps keep me grounded that, you know, so that I don't get grandiose or I don't get self-important because everybody, we've all got egos, right? Like yeah. it, you got to keep it healthy, but don't, don't start thinking you're so important that you, you know, if you leave, operations can't go forward, right? So it, it's a, it's that to kind of keep yourself, keep perspective. And then there's enough sunshine for everyone. It, it is incumbent upon us as leaders to make sure that if, you know, if I win the lottery tomorrow, that my organization is healthy. And if I were to be like, deuces, and, you know, somebody had to to fill in, that it's it gives me great comfort to know that I can think of four people right off the top of my head that would be a perfect, perfect fit, right? And so that is not a threat to me at all because I'm comfortable with what with what I'm good at. There's so much work to be done that I don't have to be the star of the show. There's enough sunshine for everybody. And when other people feel success, it is it makes me feel like Evan amazing whenever I see somebody in in my charge, you know, slingshot and just go, go right, right up like to the moon. To me, that, that is, that is reflective on me. So that's, that's kind of how I try to to keep a positive attitude. It's keep myself humble. (laughs) Awesome, Jamie. I love it. Well, thank you again so much for spending your time with me today. This thing is a fantastic conversation and uh, keep doing your best out there. And thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I'll talk soon. Jamie. 